Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Anthony Painter. I'm the Chief Research and Impact Officer at the RSA, though it is my last day. And I'm delighted to welcome you all to today's special RSA online event. Um, I'm really pleased to have the chance to talk today to Diane Coyle. Diane is an economist and Bennett Professor of Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. She's a former advisor to the UK Treasury and founder of the Enlightened Economist Consultancy Group. And she's been one of our foremost public intellectuals for some time. And Diane has written numerous fantastic books, the latest of which is Cogs and Monsters, what economics is and what it should be, um, which we're talking about today. Uh, and I can't recommend it enough. Um, if those of you watching along would like to join the conversation about the event on Twitter, you're very welcome to do so using the hashtag RSA Economics um, or in our YouTube chat. And Diane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me to share your last day with you, Anthony. Uh, absolute, absolute pleasure. It's actually my last event and uh, 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 of all saying so once this is finished, the computer's closing, we're going on to other things. So there we are. Um, Diane, um, going to your book, um, can you talk a bit about your sort of personal journey over the last 30 or 40 years? Because one thing I found really intriguing, you have a sort of series of intermissions within the book, and they seem to be sort of experiences and turning points of, of your own sort of professional biography that interlinks with changes in our understanding of economics and the challenges that economics has faced. That's a really interesting question, and um, I feel really lucky that I've had really many careers as an economist. It's It's been my vocation, and there are lots of things that you can do with the skills that you learn as an economist. So as you mentioned in the intro, I started in the Treasury in the 1980s after my PhD. Um, I worked in journalism for a long time. I set up a consultancy. Um, I I've done many public service roles, including the Competition Commission, and, and academic life is just the latest of those. And um, I suppose I've learned from the kinds of experiences and the kinds of events that have taken place over the course of that, that really quite long period. One of them has obviously been the change in digital technology and the way that's transformed our daily lives and the economy. I've been watching that unfold since my first book came out 25 years ago, The Weightless World. But there have been experiences as well being a member of the Competition Commission was uh, such an amazing learning experience for me, partly because I was working with a brilliant economist, Paul Jaroski, who, who sadly died very young, uh, but partly because it's where you learn about how businesses operate and how markets operate. So if you're doing that in any kind of non-practical environment, it's all rather abstract. We've got models about how markets work and things called production functions and factors of production. And then you talk to businesses and find out how they actually do that. And, and the gap between business thinking and economic thinking, even the way that people use terms differently. If you think about a term like efficiency, it's meaning to somebody running a manufacturing company and, and an economist are completely different. And so part of what interests me is the way we communicate about the structure of the economy, the way the world operates, uh, when we have we share a, we're divided by a common language if you like um but but yes you know my thinking has evolved over time um i i was trained at the high point of rational expectations um perfect competition um business uh, business cycle models so uh, and that's been ebbing in the profession 
ever since, although many people still think it's what it's how economists think. Um, but then observing the very different way that digital companies operate, for example, um, observing events like the financial crisis, I, I think it would be odd if one hadn't changed over that long period. So interesting. And, and to, to go back to the, 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 the case you outlined there, this sort of d different sense of what efficiency means to someone in a manufacturing business or to economists. The, the story of the book, to me, seems to me in many ways the sort of uh, attempts amongst the economics profession to close that gap between its sort of theory and models and the real world progressively. Um, it's a never ending sort of interaction. And we'll come back to the, 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 the tech dimension later. Um, but there's been some leaps, hasn't there? And there's been some moments and leaps, you know, uh, moments when um, such as the, you know, the, 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 the financial crash, um, uh, climate economics and so on, where um, the, the profession has been fundamentally challenged in certain ways. Um, and your contention in the book is that it, it's managed to adapt in the, in the right ways, probably just in the right amount of time. That's right. E economics has changed a lot. And um, you quite often hear people talk about um, ne neoliberal economics, which lumps all economists together in the same category, when I think it's really a political term. There are economists who think that um, markets are always best, that they are sufficiently competitive, that you would always use a price mechanism when you can. Um, but it's that the profession's a broad church now, and many things have changed. The ideas have changed partly in response to events, and really it would be strange if, certainly after the financial crisis, there hadn't been a lot of introspection going on in economics. Um, another thing that's changed is the, just the availability of data, uh, the mm -hmm. computer power, and also the um, statistical techniques, the econometric techniques for making sense of that. And there's been a huge shift away from um, more abstract theoretical economics and macro, how does the economy as a whole operate, towards applied microeconomics, which is looking at things that many people might think of as, I don't know, social policy rather than economics. Um, how does the health system operate? How does the education system work? Um, what about pensions? So all of these quite crunchy, um, smaller scale, looking at markets or, or looking at subsectors sub of the economy. And there's been a, a huge explosion of applied empirical work in that, which um, I think doesn't get sufficiently recognised by many critics of economics who focus on the macro side, which I'm quite critical of myself. And the thing that frustrates me about the lack of understanding about how broad the tent is and how applied it all is now is um, that it, it sort of lets eco economics off the hook for some things that I, I think start, still are wrong and need discussing within the profession. Do you want to go on to a couple of those things? What, what are the things that, that you think that where, where there are deficiencies that currently need, 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 need addressing within the economics profession? Well, one that is now increasingly talked about is the uh, lack of diversity in the profession. Yeah. Many academic subjects have a, have a gender skew. Economics is very male and uh, along with computer science or parts of engineering, for example. And um, uh, there are less good figures, but also quite white and middle class. 
this matters more for social science than it does for some other disciplines, perhaps. Um, and, you know, how can we even know that we're asking the right questions if the base of experience among economists who are doing the research is so narrow? And I think the professional associations have certainly recognised this and are doing a lot of work to try to change it, uh, starting right back in, in schools and going into schools and trying to provide role models so that um, the world at large understands that not all economists are, are white middle class males. Uh, it is a bit of an uphill struggle, I think. And just look at the moment at the controversy about Lisa Cook in the United States, um, an African-American woman, uh, a wonderful economist who's been nominated for the Federal Reserve Board by President Biden. And there are conservative economists who are criticizing her, um, ostensibly on the grounds that the kind of economics she does isn't sufficiently relevant for the Fed, for instance. And um, that's just so obviously untrue that I think there is some disguised, you know, hostility to somebody looking so different and, and having such different experiences and bringing such different questions in her research to economics, uh, I, I think is part of it. So that is, for, the, the key thing for me is not knowing what we don't know if we're so narrow um, in, our, in our base. The other thing I'm sure there's been I'm sure there's been many many underqualified um, uh, uh, well white professional males who have made it onto the Federal Reserve Board over the years and it sounds like she most definitely isn't she just asks a series of different more um, well, different perspectives and approaches the problem from a different angle. Yeah that's absolutely right. Um, th 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 so the other um, one of the other things I talk quite a lot about in the book is um, the insistence among economists that we are doing something um, objective and we can analyze the situation and come up with the best answer. You see that reflected in the metaphors that people use. Keynes said dentists were like dentists. Esther Duflo compared us to plumbers. People talk about being engineers. And um, this really reflects the sort of positivist 1930s origins of modern economics, where the idea was that um, either you've got logic and you've got empir empirical observation and those are the only things that you can know. Yeah. So there's a really strong um, uh, sense among economists that that's what we do. We analyse a situation, we recommend a policy or course of action because we can figure out what's best. And you'll quite often hear economists saying uh, this would be the best policy if only the politicians would implement it. And to me that signals that if, it, if it's not possible to implement it, it can't be the best policy. Yeah. And what this insistence on being plumbers overlooks is um, what it means to make something better. And that's an inherently value-laden concept. And we fool ourselves by using the word efficiency to describe it because we've got a very narrow concept of efficiency. It's called Pareto efficiency. Yeah. It says, um, you can only say that one situation is better than another if somebody is better off and nobody has been made worse off. And we call that efficiency. And then I think many of us slip into thinking of that as a more engineering concept of efficiency uh, and um, you know, some kind of absolute sense of better. But better is always normative. It's always about values. And the framework we have for analyzing the economy rules out thinking about redistribution and conflicts of interest. When it's all about that, any economic policy is going to make somebody worse off. Yeah. And this, this um, confusion, I think, has emerged in 
the um, distrust of experts in um, economics as well as in some other domains by insisting that you're not talking about values when you are. I think it does over time build just distrust, corrode trust in, in you know, the, the point you're coming from. And that's not to say it's not good to try to be objective. Of course it is. Of course we should be trying to be impartial and standing outside ourselves. But ultimately, we've got to talk about the values as well. Yeah, well, we're, we're all part of the systems that we're analysing yes. and there's nothing we can do to resist the, our, our, our sort of instincts, our ethics, our norms, our values flooding into any analysis. And there are, of course, scientific methods to, to, to and push back on that process, but it's impossible to resist. Yeah. And, and I, know it's, I know it's deep in your thinking as well. So, yeah, and very, very much so. We, we we try and take a sort of pluralistic approach to, to, to these things as, as best as you can. I mean, listening to, to, to your sort of identify, identification of some of the, the current challenges within economics and sort of observing the history of the sort of influence of the economics profession on public policy over the last 30 years or so, it seems to me the two things start to come together um, in quite a challenging way because the, the, the narrowness of focus, the, the, the narrowness of range, um, the, the, the focus on, you know, uh, on Pareto optimality um, and you know, economic modelling and economic, you know, old style economic assumptions, these things have shifted as, as, as you've identified, becomes even more problematic um, when economics starts to spread wider and wider into into the sort of public policy universe and this seems to happen to me anyway i mean you might might might, might think differently sort of from the sort of late 70s 80s where economic thinking almost sort of comes to a dominant position and you know you look at you know the, if, if you like creating an internal market within uh, within the um, nhs the allocation of of a sort of uh, spectrum the 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 this sort of reform and attempt to remodel the soviet union after its collapse all these areas you see that sort of that 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 economic perspective for the 1980s, neoliberal being the political way of describing it, neoclassical you might describe it, monetarist, whatever it may whatever it may be. But those things sort of sort of come together. So you've got this narrowness of focus, lack of diversity of, of perspective in the people who are the professional economists, but also in the way of thinking as well, coming together with quite a powerful place within the public policy world globally. That's really interesting. I think I agree with you um, with some caveats. And it's the kind of point that people like Michael Sandel have made so um, eloquently in his books about the spread of this sort of neoclassical economic thinking to mm -hmm. um, domains of life where it's inappropriate. And it's clearly being tied up with um, political tides so it became more dominant, although in this country, the economics profession and government started in the 1960s, um, it became much more powerful and extensive with the arrival of Mrs. Thatcher in government who brought that um, political ideology with her and all of the lessons that the think tanks of um, right-wing think tanks had created. So there's always um, an interplay, if you like, between politics and the kind of economics that come into um, into dominance and, and and of course the events as well because Thatcherism itself was a reaction to the crisis of the 1970s and the strikes and the winter of discontent and, and so on so that does happen and you know I think as you say 
many people would feel that the, the, the market type thinking has spread into inappropriate areas. Public services being prime examples of these. And there's quite a lot of research looking at the extent to which market type mechanisms have actually improved outcomes for public services. And in some ways um, they've been good. There's research looking at the English NHS and patient choice. And it seems to be the case that um, that has improved patient outcomes in some measurable respects. Um, but there are others where you might think actually the economic criteria are just not the most important ones. Uh, to take today's example, leveling up. And in its Green Book revision last year, or maybe the year before, I lose track of the years these days, um, <laughs> the Treasury acknowledged that sometimes you might have, the government might have strategic objectives that override economic efficiency and cost-benefit analysis. And uh, um, changing the distribution of activity around the country would be a, a very valid strategic aim. Um, on the other hand, market processes or mechanisms can be used for good. And one example is the well-known kidney exchange example, that's introducing a market mechanism to match um, donors and recipients. And a lot of the apps on our smartphones use these sorts of matching mechanisms and we benefit from those in every day in convenience and choice and all of that. Another example might be thinking about the environment. Uh, a lot of my work recently has been on economic measurement and uh, thinking about the economy's whole balance sheet. What are all of the assets that we have as a nation that give us services that al allow us to lead better lives over time? One of those is natural capital. And there are environmentalists who strongly um, dislike, disapprove of the attempt to put any kind of monetary value on nature at all. And for me, the trouble with that is that if you don't count it in some common currency with things that go on in the market, you're giving it a value of zero in um, the kind of calculus that goes into economic policy decisions. So putting a number there, flawed as it might be, is better than having a zero there. And you know that's a very important debate to have, and I completely respect people who argue about the intrinsic value of nature. Of course it has intrinsic value. Um, but on the other hand, we've got to operate in a world where Policymakers make cho make choices and trade-offs, and we want nature to figure properly in those kinds of trade-offs. So I th that's a long-winded way of saying I think I agree with you, but I do have some, um, you know, caveats, some um, some liking for the power of the economic analysis. Yeah, and you know, it's 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 the right tool for the right job, isn't it? Um, ultimately, it's really interesting. I, I was I was thinking um, as I was reading your book about. Um, uh, the economic modelling and the environment question, actually, and you know, obviously we had the, the Stern review and the Dasgupta review on natural capital recently, you know, your own work and the work of many others. And I guess, um, uh, in one sense, I don't, I don't take the view that actually there's something deeply problematic in this. Um, but one question I did have as I was thinking it through is, well, look, we know that our economic activity is creating environmental destruction. We know um, that it's causing a climate emergency, the loss of um, biodiversity. Um, and we, we know all this is, is, is catastrophic and will be catastrophic. Um, and you know, the natural sciences 
have been very clear um, in in evidencing one what is happening and two what the the probable consequences um, will be, although it's very difficult to predict with accuracy. And so, ultimately, given we know this, why do we need economics to persuade us to take action? You know, this is this is this is urgent. This is a you know a cross generational challenge, and we should be able to mobilise the resources we need. Economics comes into it in the question of how you best mobilise those resources and how you might might deploy them. Why ultimately do you need? The, the sort of natural capital model and so on in order to persuade action. And I just wondered whether the reason for that actually is that economics is so embedded into our public policy thinking that unless we can have the economic modeling or an economic way of describing things, that you know, governments who are driven by economic modeling and cost benefit analysis and so on really struggle to take decisive action. So I think it's about your theory of change and this is an area where you probably know more than I do, Anthony. I suppose the way I think about it is that the economic language is really powerful in political decision making. Yeah. And therefore yeah. you need to speak the language of the treasury. Yeah. And sometimes that has quite perverse effects and things like um, only talking about well-being in economic metrics, turning that yeah. into monetary values when it's multi-dimensional and very context dependent yeah. I think can be problematic um, but that's that is the way that decisions get made at the moment and I suppose there are two questions one is using the economic language effectively to get policymakers to um, do things differently and and the other is changing the whole intellectual climate so that the political debate we have and the public debate we have um, just doesn't go down those those single tram lines. So yeah. the whole question about how do you change the climate of ideas um, it com comes to the front. And the only way that I know how to do that is by you know writing books and papers about it and and trying to engage in the public conversation. Um, it's partly why I've always thought communicating about economics and what we do is is so important. Yeah, vital. And of course, financial markets think in these ways as well. And actually, you know, financial markets, whether we like it or not, are going to be crucial to the, 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 the green um, uh, transition. My, um, colleague, my colleague Matthew Agawala and his co-authors have been specifically looking at financial markets, seeing that as a lever for change. Yeah. And so, for example, have adjusted sovereign um, credit ratings for climate risk. And that's the kind of thing that might change financial markets and therefore might change business behaviour. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So, I mean, to go back to our early conversation about the sort of the, the, the rise of economics, and with, with great power sort of comes great scrutiny, of course. And then, you know, so, so economics sort of, um, or, you know, neoclassical economics to, 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 to give it its, you know, a, a proper label of focus, um, uh, draws that criticism and scrutiny, um, you know, and, and that there is, you know, a, that, that there is a sense that it needs to be knocked off its perch, but for some good reasons, be, because, you know, that that type of economics, as we say, had its limitations and, and arguably created some harms that were that were unnecessary, or maybe not arguably, actually, historically did. Um, so what, what are the sort of criticisms that, that sort of in sort of provoked you to write this 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 sort of you know impassioned response um if if you like because you, 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 a big sense of injustice come through um cog, cogs and monsters you felt some of the criticism was, was incredibly wrong-headed well some of it is um simply simply wrong you know criticizing economics of being too mathematical 
I mean, sure, there are economists who, who do what Paul Romer has labeled mathiness, which is fancy algebra or topology just for the sake of it without adding anything to the economic insight. But all disciplines have models because we're all looking at a complex world and trying to you know, reduce its dimensionality, make sense of it in some way. So historians have models about the causes of the Second World War, for instance. Philosophers have models. Um, we just happen to use an algebraic notation for our models, um, which is like shorthand. It's like write, a journalist writing in shorthand. Yeah. And I, I think that's just wrong-headed. Um, a lot of people also think that all economists do macroeconomics, which for me is just the most problematic area of, um, of the whole discipline. It's become quite a small area in terms of numbers of people doing it. And it's just so obviously not scientific, but political, because you've got schools of macroeconomists shouting at each other and unable to provide um, knockout evidence that one or other of them is right. Mm -hmm. So monetary theory, MMT versus the rest, or should there be fiscal stimulus or not? And it's uh, back to um, my undergraduate days in the 19, uh, late 1970s when you had monetarists and Keynesians shouting at each other and that yeah. completely reflected political yeah. views. And there are some mainly North American conservative economists who I think still manifest the arrogance that got uh, macroeconomics into such trouble um, in, with the financial crisis. Yeah. Um, so th that, that I think is a valid you know valid point of criticism but it's not what most of us do and because it's what's mostly talked about in public that's what many of the critics think that we all do so my, part of my sense of injustice is actually people really um people who are making criticisms have not really kept up with what economists um do in practice and that includes in government as well as in academic research yeah it's interesting and yeah, I, I think you know the, the the case you make isn't the very smart, but quite evidently, um, economics has adapted to to um, behavioural science, to um, institutional theory, and a whole plethora of other uh, ways. I, I I guess if I and I completely agreed with with all of your rebuttals in the book. I I, I guess I had one additional potential criticism, which I'll give you the opportunity to to, to knock down though, and I think it's that the tendency that in its change and in its adaptation economics tends to consume other disciplines um, that have been in the territory for, for quite some And look, you know, the academic, academic life and knowledge, unfortunately, is quite sort of um, territorial and can be very, very segregated. And I guess in, in my mind, actually, um, you know, a few weeks ago, Edward O. Wilson um, uh, uh, sadly passed away and you know his big intellectual mission or one of his big intellectual missions was to fuse sort of sociology and biology and something called you know sociobiology and more widely you know, a sort of heterodox disciplinary um uh, approach to sort of sort of consilience um if 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 you like and i just have a have a sense that sometimes economics when it's adapted arrives in places that others have been for some time 
and pretends that it's sort of revolutionary economic thought, where actually it's it's psychology or it's political theory or it's anthropology or it's sociology or it's complexity theory and 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 and, and mathematics. I mean, is is my sort of my my instinctive unease with this 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 sort of process of a, a fair one? Am I am I doing economics a further disservice? No, I think I, I think I agree with you, actually. I, funnily enough, I cite Wilson in my previous book about economics, which is called The Soul of the Science, because mm -hmm. I agree about trying to join up more with other disciplines. And I, I think it's Danny Roderick who said you only become a good economist if you read an awful lot of other things apart from economics. Uh, one, somebody who had read my book commented on Twitter, uh, I do agree with this, but, but have you not read any sociology? Actually, yes. probably, I've probably read more sociology than many other economists, yes. um, but, but I think it's a fair point. The, the area where it most troubles me is behavioural economics, actually, which most people, and indeed I also, um, cite as a, a kind of success that we've taken account of psychology and understanding better what people's actual decision-making processes are. But what worries me about it is that economists go, okay, we'll ditch one set of assumptions, we'll apply the other set of assumptions, and then we'll carry on exactly as we were. Yeah. And so we still um, put on our white lab coats as social engineers and stand outside and decide what's optimal for society on the basis of these, you know, we know that these preferences are flawed. We know what the ideal preferences ought to be. And so we'll devise something that will move people towards where we think they ought to be. So there's still something quite reductionist and social engineering about it. Um, so understanding much better for psychologists as well as economists how context plays into people's decision-making processes because if pigeons or rats or monkeys act like rational economic actors subject to budget constraints in some contexts we're not going to say people are more stupid than pigeons so we need to understand better where different kinds of decision-making process kick in Absolutely. And when that process happens, of course, you, 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 you import the deficiencies of the or the limitations rather deficiencies of the of the of the domain. And, and what you've described there actually is a limitation. Yes, we've adjusted our notion of what what human cognition is and bounded rationality and all and all, and all those sorts of things. Um, but then there's social psychology. There's there's you know institutional theory, another area that, that economics has has learned from and imported, which actually brings me on to my 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 my, my next thought. because um, I, I kept on thinking about Eleanor Ostrom, who, who of course you, you you cite frequently in the in your in in, in your book. Um, and um, I, I actually went back to her Wikipedia page to remind myself of her biography, because of course she, she was the first female um, Nobel uh, laureate in economics. Um, and um, but when you actually look at her, and I have looked at her work in my own my own uh, uh, re research, and you know, her work on common pool resources and nested systems, and it, it's incredibly rich. Um, but when you look through it. You don't think, well, this is the work of, 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 of an economist. Do you think this is the work of an anthropologist almost, or you know, a political theorist? And in fact, her career was one of a political scientist, in fact, rather than an economist. I don't know what how she would have regarded herself or where her true sort of home was amongst the human sciences, the social sciences. But you look at her career, and actually she couldn't get into the economics profession because she didn't have trigonometry, which was an essential at, at, at the time, which of course goes us back to the point about, you know, artificial barriers that are placed ahead of people getting into um, the profession. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's so interesting that, that 
she has become regarded, you know, as uh, as as you know, one of the leading economists of the last half century. But I'm not even sure you can describe her uh, as, as as an economist um, in in any sort of real sense of the word. I think uh, when she won the Nobel Prize, many economists were really surprised and wouldn't have described her as an, as an economist. Yeah. And um, she's become more relevant because what she was asking about uh, was taking, collect taking collective decisions in different kinds of contexts. And when do um, different mechanisms or systems of governance deliver better outcomes according to context? And eco economics has always assumed um, that on the whole markets are the best system of governance and allocating resources, taking collective decisions about allocating resources. And so her work asked about um, in specific contexts of common pool resources, was that the case? And her answer was no, that um, a, another rich set of institutional arrangements would um, yeah. perfectly well allocate resources among a group of people. And the reason I think that's become more interesting now is actually digital, because they have um, this public public good characteristic, to use the economic jargon, then they're non-rival. Um, lots of people can use the same thing at the same time. If somebody has a database, uh, then many people can use it at the same time and it, it doesn't get depleted by by use. They've always and they've always been um, goods like this in the economy and people frame that as a markets versus state decision. So we had the pendulum of nationalization and privatization. Actually, none of them is going to work well because of the, just the inherent features of those, those contexts of public goods and, and market failures as, as they get labeled. And that the scope of that territory is just growing much bigger in the digital economy. Yeah. We have in effect much more market failure uh, we've seen that markets are not doing what they should in um, the textbook sense because we've got digital monopolies, tech giants, all kinds of bad yeah. outcomes from that structure. Uh, should we be thinking about different kinds of governance? Uh, I wouldn't automatically say let's nationalise Google, um, although I wouldn't take it off the table either. But we're probably in the territory of thinking about Austrian style um, richness of governance institutions to get the digital economy to work better for everybody. Yeah, really interesting. Because I think, and we'll come on to the technology question now. I think because it, it's it's you know in life um, you can be in spaces where they're they're digital or, or real world, and actually they're they're, they're multi-purpose um, and they are um, uh, multi-experiential. So you know if you go into a coffee shop, yes, you're engaging in a market transaction, you're exchanging cash for a coffee. Uh, and and you're consuming that product but you might also be meeting a friend who's in need of support because they're lonely or their career has gone the wrong way there's something that is personal and social that is happening there you might also um be be engaged in a local community group so civil society is happening there so lots of different angles that the, the same activity can be viewed in very different ways and of course you know that's absolutely true when it comes to google or facebook or so on you know what you do on facebook doesn't relate to what it is as a market actually the, the market is people trying to sell you things through through um, targeted advertising but that's not 
not not why you're there. You just that, that's what happens while while you happen to be there. So for you, what what how does the digital economy actually fundamentally change? I mean, you talk a lot about GDP in the in the book, for for, for example. Um, and obviously, you know, the criticism of GDP uh, are, are, are longstanding that it's not a, re a real measure of welfare. It's a it's it's a measure of production and output and so on. And actually, it doesn't tell us that much around the things that we really value as human beings. We need to measure those things. And of course, the digital economy probably highlights that a little more or is it or is it something fundamentally different there's something more fundamental about the challenge of the digital economy to the to, to the way we understand modern economies i think it's more fundamental and um it's going to lead us to develop a new conceptualization and um therefore set of me measures which is what i look at for how we think about the economy i mean one change is the blurring of the boundary between um, work and monetary activities that get counted in GDP or as the economy yeah. and things that we do at home. Yeah. We've seen that happen in lots of ways. Uh, even before the pandemic, things like um, creating free content for other people's entertainment online or coding open source software or doing your banking transactions online rather than going to the high street, putting together your own holiday online. So that had already started to blur. And of course it's blurred big time over the past couple of years. Um, another uh, feature is that we're not so individual as we were, that um, actions that we do are able to have a bigger impact on other people's choices than in the non-digital economy because of this feature of, of non-rivalry and increasing returns to scale. And so more people joining a social network makes it better for everybody else. There are lots of network effects. And, and, and these scale economies mean that, you know, as a, a, a big company gets, gets bigger and bigger, actually there, there are good outcomes for consumers from that. Also the kind of growing wedge between what GDP measures and what we care about in terms of economic welfare, GDP was good enough as long as that gap stayed roughly constant but when it's growing GDP becomes less and less good as a metric of how the economy is progressing. So I think it's quite fundamental and towards the end of the book I argue for ditching the benchmark that we have you know we, we we understand the world's complicated and all kinds of stuff happens but we start from a perfect competition, um, uh, rival goods, uh, perfect information uh, kind of model and construct market failures on that basis and pick off market failures and I think that's just the wrong starting point and somehow we're going to have to ditch that benchmark. It's interesting and, and the, the, the the sort of traditional ways of measuring and understanding the economic world are sort of often well they're designed for functional reasons in many ways we have we have GDP because governments need GDP it seems seems to me they need to know you know what resources are coming in what they're going to be able to tax what they're going to have to spend and so on so that it, it gives an element of predictability or, or, or they think it gives them an element of predictability to that um, ability to execute the, the, the sort of basic functions of the of the of the modern state um, you, you might say and is your contention then with the the, the changing nature of the digital economy network effects and so on that actually this will help steer public policy in new ways and actually we've been slow to act say for example on network monopoly um, as a result of not having those analytical tools um, within our armory including you know in your in your in your old world in in, in the competition and and uh, markets regulatory world absolutely and um because there was a kind of 
well-established and quite global framework for competition analysis that had become embedded across the US, Europe, uh, UK, um, but also actually uh, in China to some extent, which set up its own antitrust authority. Mm. Um, you know, it was seen as um, uh, the kind of classic economic market analysis that you could do would give you the answers and overlooked the dynamic network characteristics, the winner take all characteristics of the digital economy. Economics has plenty to say about that, about that kind of competition and contestability of markets, but it wasn't part of the toolkit. And I think it's actually fundamentally changing competition thinking, where um, there's been an emergence of different schools of thought for the first time, probably since the 1960s mm. or 1970s. Um, because when you've got dynamic markets, the decisions that competition authorities take are going to shape the market one way or the other. Mm. Doing nothing will lead to one market outcome. Doing yeah. something will lead to a different market outcome. And that's a choice. It might be a choice between does the American or Chinese tech giant dominate your market or do you create the space for um, a, a, a domestic company to try to grow into that market? So those are the kinds of questions that I think are going to emerge more frequently and it will change um, the sort of technocratic stance of antitrust policy. Interesting. And in this regard, of course, the, the appointment of uh, Lena Khan to the Federal Trade Commission, I think it's an interesting yeah. sort of experiment on one to watch to see whether, whether the, the US can move beyond what has been the, 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 the paradigm of competition for the last few decades. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, although, of course, there it's seen as attacking monopolies like the trust busting in yeah. the US in the early 20th century. But I would go a little bit further and say, it's not just what are you knocking down, but how are you thinking about the economy that you want to shape um, as, as these um, you know, market forces roll forward? Of course, um, one of the things that um, is at the forefront of domestic political conversation, policy conversation at the moment is levelling up, which is all about market shaping. Um, it's all about shaping the, 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 the geography of economic activity and the distributional consequences of that activity. It's not just about that, it's obviously it's linked in with you know, community um, identity, democracy, governance um, uh, also. But th this seems to me to be a very fertile place for the, 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 the type of heterodox experimentation that we were kind of touching on um, earlier, earlier on because actually it's not just an economic development question. It is a question of, of, of governance, identity, um, innovation, uh, global trade, um, uh, regional resource distribution, whether that's on a, on a place-based level um, or to individuals, including through, through, through public services. You know, uh, th this could be a quite exciting domain of experimentation. I know, I know in the Bennett Institute, you're looking very, be looking very, very, and closely at this. Having said that, it still feels like it's locked in an old political battle between um, a very traditional sort of net asset value, cost benefit, treasury perspectives, and actually a new way of thinking around uh, governance and regional distribution. Do, do you feel that it's kind of locked in the old world or do you think we're, we're, we're going into a new world? Well, I have to confess, I've not read in detail all 322 pages of the white paper. <laughs> <laughs> My impression is, uh, from a quick read uh, and longer read of some bits, is that actually there's um, a, a different kind of analysis of what the problem is, and that hasn't 
translated into different kinds of solutions. Because it's not that we've not been trying to do some form of leveling up for a long time or industrial no. policy for a long time. And um, so, uh, you know, as you say, there is a sort of um, trap of conventional thinking about this. If you have a mindset that says, well, markets work pretty well, so the distribution of resources we've got is, is probably pretty good. And if you're trying to change that, you're trying to buck market forces in some way, that's going to limit how much you can change. So we'll do a bit here and a bit there, um, but it's not very efficient and we'll be half-hearted about it. If you think that the um, distribution of labor and capital around the country isn't in a good place to start with, and you can shape it, and that there are all kinds of self-fulfilling uh, policies and outcomes that are part of that process, then you can think like a Victorian. You can think, um, you know, we will build 150 years worth of sewage capacity rather than 20 years worth um, and um, create, create the space for the growth that we want to see. Or you can think, uh, we know there's a tipping point somewhere in terms of productivity if we can connect up northern cities in a single labour market. And mm. so let's do what it takes to get to that point. Uh, because this is what we want to achieve in terms of regional balance in our economy. So there's a, a very different market shaping perspective. It's really worth looking at um, a Twitter thread Tom Forth put on um, online yesterday, or possibly the day before, comparing and contrasting regional policies in the UK with East Germany, and what had happened in a town like a city like Stuttgart, and the scale of the resources and the determination of the West German government uh, the combined German government at the time of unification to do something about it had to at uh, quite a large degree some self-fulfilling outcomes so you don't take um, the economy as painting by numbers you take it as a blank canvas and you paint yeah. your own vision and that's that's the political perspective that's needed we're going into revolutionary spaces now, um, which is no bad thing. Um, and I, I, I agree. And I just, I just want—I mean, you know, whether it's um, whether it's uh, le leveling up, um, uh, whether it's developing a future economy, whether it's confronting the ecological crisis that we face, you just suspect um, that 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 the, the sort of the the level of forward thinking of resource. Um, aggregation and distribution and and the willingness to place very very big bets ultimately is quite there across our politics I don't I, 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 I don't hear it anywhere in our in our politics particularly um, but the scale of what is required to get to where we think we need to be in by, by, by 2050 we don't feel that we've I don't feel that we've risen to that that sort of scale of challenge quite yet. I don't know what you think about where public opinion is or, or in the climate of opinion is compared to where politicians are. Politicians seem to be, be quite fearful about stepping yeah. out of line for all yeah. kinds of reasons. The obvious electoral ones, will the newspapers have a go at them? Um, but among in the conversations that you have in forums like this or, you know, groups that I talk to in different places around the country, there's self-selection of the audiences. Um, but there's more openness, I think, in general opinion to different ways of thinking. And I, I don't know how this plays out politically or if someday we'll get a more, um, a bolder politician who will pick up on some parts of this, or if it's just a much more complicated and messy process of 
lots of people, lots of think tanks, lots of organizations having these conversations. And meanwhile, things get a bit worse, but eventually we get some change. Yeah, no. I'm not going to predict the future. I, I, I agree with you. I, th I think there is far more openness to change um, than, than is the conventional wisdom. All, all of our sort of, you know, we do a lot of sort of um, uh, survey work um, and it shows that, that people are aware of, of the challenge, particularly around the environmental um, emergency. Um, and they are willing to think big. They want to be protected in the transition. You know, they, 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 they want to know that someone's got their back. So there's looking after their family security um, in the process. Um, but I definitely sense there's, there's an openness to, 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 to bigger ideas. Um, we just need a couple of transformational leaders to be willing to run with it. Well, maybe we'll get them. Maybe. <laughs> Diane, I thought we have run out of time and this has been fan fantastic and um, th th there's no one better to be making these arguments than, than, than yourself. Um, I would recommend to anybody, not just reading Diane's um, fantastic latest book, but her blog as well, which demonstrates the incredible range of, of reading and insight you draw on, Diane. I mean, it's it's daunting, actually, but it's 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 good that you 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 share your your thoughts and reflections with all of us on 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 your blog, and you'll see history, sociology, management, economics, whatever you want to look at uh, there. So, thank you for joining us today. Um, I encourage thank everyone you, to get. A thank you, Anthony, for letting me share your last day with you. I <laughs> know oh, that's fine. That's fine. It's been an absolute pleasure. I can't think of anybody I would rather be spending my my final hour at the RSA with, but. Um, for everyone watching, do stay tuned to the RSA's channels for more events like these and updates on our own work. Um, uh, you can hit subscribe, I think it's down below, on YouTube and, and visit the RSA uh, website and find out what we're up to and how you can get involved. Um, as we mentioned a couple of times, I'll be moving on to Pastures New right after this event. So um, thank you all for watching the, the dozens of events I've, I've hosted over the years. It's been an absolute honour. Uh, and pleasure. Um, I've left a final essay because I couldn't resist on the RSA website. It's called A Voice from a Future Generation. And it covers some of the themes in our conversation today, including the need for what I describe as a life um, economy. And a link for that is in the, the sidebar uh, and down below. And all that's left for me is to say thank you once again to Diane Coyle. Uh, and thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.